other things certainly are in a very different situation this evening. And we can be again appreciative and thankful for the blessing of God on our behalf. As we've enjoyed perhaps the elements outside today and the other aspects of just being able to come together. We might remember the words of the psalmist in Psalm 118 when there it was declared, This is the day that the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This evening as we come near the close of this first day of this week, the Lord's Day, a lesson that we might turn our attention to and one as you can see entitled both in the bulletin and on the wall to my left, the wine that Jesus made. Perhaps we're already familiar with the scene from which that lesson text is taken, the issues surrounding that second chapter of the gospel according to John. It is to that text that I would turn our attention tonight as we look more intently and somewhat interestingly at some of the features of that text. But as we do that, first some introductory thoughts to prepare us for some of the ideas that may be challenging about this text as well as some others that we so often encounter in the Word of God. It is true, certainly isn't it, that one of the aspects of the Bible that poses such a challenging matter to so many people in our world, and sometimes ourselves included, is the way in which it leaves no stone unturned, namely that it governs or dictates all aspects of my life and of yours, the things that we say, the thoughts that cross our mind, the actions in which we engage, the Bible, in fact, at least directly or indirectly, touches all of those areas. And so it is that we can't run and hide from God anywhere in our lives. He dictates, He has information for and commands relative to all the attributes and aspects of your life and mine. That includes not only those generic matters we just mentioned, but the relationships that we sustain with others within our families and even outside. It touches matters of our entertainment, what's appropriate and what isn't. Merely considering all of that leads us to notice that there are many behaviors then in our world that the world, in fact, can openly accepts, endorses, even encourages. And the Bible does not view it that way at all. Isn't it true that quite often that which the world finds pleasing, sustaining, and appropriate, the Bible openly condemns and states that that is not pleasing unto God? It is that very matter that seems to touch so directly the lives of many that you and I may know, those who sometimes may in fact not look forward to conversations with, with us. Sometimes issues such as dancing, the consumption of beer, even matters related to sexual relationships outside the bond of marriage. Our world doesn't look upon any of those things as overtly bad anymore. And yet the Bible has such a different tune that it resoundingly declares relative to all of them. It is the case this evening. As we contemplate and ponder the character of those matters, we might in fact turn our attention to the one concerning alcoholic beverages because we're going to look at it from a different perspective tonight than perhaps we have in the past. Let me lead up to the question that might so often be posed. And remember, our theme shall be to consider the nature of the consumption of alcoholic beverages. But we will look at the wine that Jesus made to help us not only appreciate that lesson, but to even more broadly consider it in other ways as well. First of all, let's notice some general statements about the production of alcoholic beverages. I think in passing from time to time we have made note of some of these, but it certainly isn't a poor thing or an inappropriate thing to make mention of some of them again. 
I would submit to you that in many ways it was a rather dark day when man first developed the skill and the talent to produce alcoholic beverages. And I would ask you to notice, interestingly, some emphasis that might be noted within that statement. I did say that when man learned to produce and to make it, it is in some ways a misconception that alcoholic beverages will almost make themselves. Take some apple juice, some grape juice, just let it sit around long enough and it'll make its own fermented beverages. That is not true. It takes great skill. Talk to any of the brewmasters that you see interviewed on television from time to time and look at the carefulness with which the temperature has to be governed. The sugar content has to be monitored. The yeast content has to be certainly made proper. If any of that isn't correct, it won't even be edible. Notice again, alcoholic beverages do not make themselves. It takes a tremendous amount of experience, expertise, and skill in order to produce them. In fact, we find in the ancient days of the long ago, man had learned how to do that. It's mentioned as early as Genesis, the ninth chapter, the opening book in the Bible. By that point, men had already learned how to produce and how to make the beverages that you and I would call alcoholic. It is interesting in that same line to notice what alcoholic beverages have provided to the human family. Think of the loss of life. Think about the marriages ruined. Think about the children with no respectable father or mother. Think about the other matters that have been brought into the lives of individuals due to the production, the consumption, and the pursuit of alcoholic beverages. It's a fair thing to say in light of all of that, that it's quickly our need to turn to the book of God. I have also listed one other thought that I wish for us to quickly notice. And that is the words that are employed in the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek texts. Because it's interesting that the words employed by the Bible writers do not, in and of their usages, distinguish between alcoholic and non-alcoholic beverages. In other words, the same word can well appear respective of each. And it's the context that distinguishes it. Case in point would be the word wine. You and I read that word, and it appears hundreds of times in the biblical text. Hundreds of times. However, there are some times when it is complimented and encouraged as a great blessing from God and something that all should look forward to participating in. But there are other passages where the same Hebrew word is used and is condemned by God. And those who partake of it are displeasing to Him and bring upon themselves the wrath that is in fact made available from God. And so it is that one can't just say that all wine, as it appears, is good or that it's bad. It is the context and that which is identified by it as alcoholic or non-alcoholic that appears to be the critical element that distinguishes them. As I make that statement before you, one last point is to notice some of these texts in which the consumption of wine is so resoundingly condemned three of them that I wish for us to consider quickly in passing. First, in the 10th chapter of Leviticus, as we listen to verses 9 and 10 in Leviticus chapter 10, we will come face to face with a rather overt and a very unambiguous passage relative to this subject. Let's notice, however, what it is that is said there. Leviticus 10, beginning in verse 9, Do not drink wine nor strong drink. 
thou nor thy sons with thee when you go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, and that ye may put difference between holy and unholy, and between unclean and clean. On that occasion, as God gave direction, specifically to be stated to Aaron and to his sons, that they were to participate in no manner, even in the slightest regard, in relationship to the consumption of wine, strong drink, alcoholic beverages. Isn't it interesting, as one noticed then, in their proper service to God, in carrying out the aspects and performance of the tabernacle, they were not on any occasion to participate in and to consume alcoholic beverages. But let's notice in Proverbs 20, verse number 1, quite a bit later in the Old Testament, on that occasion, interestingly, that wise man Solomon declared, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Amazingly, the language employed by Solomon on that occasion, again, made directive to him from God, had to do with the fact wine is a mocker. That means it does not tell you the truth. It will deceive. It will lie. Strong drink is raging. The word is a brawler. It leads to difficulties in life to the point where it leads to agitation and frustration and that which three chapters later is identified as redness in the eyes. We know clearly here alcoholic beverages are under discussion. And amazingly enough, he says that whoever is deceived by this is not wise. This person doesn't act in the proper character concerning the wisdom that God would have him or her to act with. The person isn't acting wisely, with soundness, with appropriate consideration of logic and analyticity. To say all of that is to perhaps appreciate that in Habakkuk 2 verse 15, one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament, that prophet Habakkuk again in pro providing the pronunciation of God's will, he says, Woe to him that giveth his neighbor drink. It is to be noted that he wasn't talking about water, nor was he referring to lemonade or some of the other beverages that you and I might in fact consider. The context of the verses that precede and follow tell us that this is that which leads to drunkenness. It leads to inebriation on the part of those who participate in it. And notice here there was a woe pronounced upon the one who would make that available to his neighbor. It seems clear from these passages, and this is just a sampling of some others that we might have chosen, that God has some strong language and very penetrating words relative to the consumption of these kinds of beverages. God's condemnation pronounced rather strongly and rather directly. But with those thoughts in mind, let's build upon that and consider also this. All of those passages were found in the Old Testament. As appreciative and as wonderful as you and I are that the Son of God has come and that we now live under a better covenant, Hebrews 8 verse 6, a better testament. This is the perfect law of liberty, James 1 verses 23 to 25. This is that perfect law of Christ, Galatians 6 verse 2. And it is that law that we, of course, shall in fact give an answer to in relation to our performance of it to God at judgment. What does the New Testament say about this? In Ephesians 5, verse 18, we find the Apostle Paul, as he spoke to the church in Ephesus, he said, And be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. As we give attention 
to the character of the language employed on that occasion in Ephesians 5, I might quickly point out what some notable Greek lexicographers have mentioned. And again, a lexicographer is just a person who has thoroughly studied the Greek and as he has been able to appreciate the meaning of those ancient Greek terms, he has translated them or expressed them in English for you and me to study and to appreciate the, the, the definition thereof. The Greek word methusko is the one that appears in that text. And that word, in fact, means to begin to be softened. We have, in fact, referred to that idea before in our studies. But as we rehearse it again, notice, to begin to be softened is what this lexicographer has asserted its meaning to be. That does not identify what you and I would say would be a final state of total drunkenness, a completed state of total intoxication. It is the process under description from first drink until last to begin to be softened. And there again, Paul directly said, be not drunk with wine. It's safe to say that that being the meaning, the presentation, if you please, for that word, there would then be an appreciation of the sinfulness of even beginning to walk down that pathway. Not just the final state of complete drunkenness, but the pro process that leads all the way until that point. That's only highlighted in verses such as 1 Corinthians 6, verse number 10. For on that occasion, notice how clearly yet another Greek word that's incredibly similar to it. Notice that in Greek, you can take a given word and by changing its ending, you can change it from an adjective to a noun to an adverb to a verb and various other parts of speech, as well as change the tense of the verbs. All you need to do is, in essence, change a little bit about the ending. We noted a moment ago in Ephesians 5, the word was methuskos. Here it's methusos. Very similar word. Notice here the condemnation placed by God upon it. In 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse number 9, we read this haunting question. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Perhaps that may seem an obvious question with an obvious answer. Do you not know, Paul told the Corinthians, that those that are unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God? But interestingly enough, Paul then says, Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor those that abuse themselves with mankind, nor extortioners, nor revilers, nor drunkards. And there the word drunkard, the one that appears in verse 10, is this word methusos. That word from 1 Corinthians 6, notice, has an identical relation to its appearance in Ephesians 5. And here it is said that those guilty of it will not inherit heaven. We can appreciate the resounding thrust and power of that concept and the idea, despite the world's approval and despite the encouragement that we see in the commercials on TV, God says it simply is a sinful thing. And he furthermore affirms that those who participate therein, if repentance isn't received, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Perhaps one more text along that line would be 1 Thessalonians 5, verse number 6. In the closing chapter of that Thessalonian epistle, the apostle Paul in writing encourages a demanded injunction. He says that we are to be sober 
And we are not to be those that walk in the dark. Those who are of the night is the exact wording that Paul there employs. We are rather to be those of the day, those who are sober. It's here again that we need to make careful distinction between the way that word is often employed today and the way that that word is employed in, in the text of 1 Thessalonians. Quite often you and I use the word sober just to mean the person's not completely drunk. In fact, many TV shows use it that way. But that's not what that word in the Bible means. In fact, I've listed for you what that word means. Let me quote again from a Greek dictionary. That word means to abstain from wine. It didn't say to partially abstain from it. It didn't say to abstain most of the time. It said to abstain from it, and that means to have nothing to do with it. It's still an interesting thing to notice that that active ingredient in alcohol that makes it the thing that is so desirable is ethyl alcohol. And it is a drug in every sense of the word. Our federal government, the Centers for Disease, in fact have labeled it as such. It has all the properties that other drugs possess. It can lead to addiction. It leads to a dumbing down, if you please, of the capabilities of the brain. Notice in the sense that it dulls the senses. God's Word enjoins upon you and me the capability of using our mental faculties to the highest degree God has given them to us. We shouldn't then purposefully seek to dull our senses so that our judgment is impaired. And yet even the first amount of liquor that one consumes accomplishes and begins to accomplish that very activity. All of those things perhaps point us to the following set of ideas. Even though one could make mention of these passages to others, and when the subject of liquor and alcoholic beverages are raised, even when reference is made to these, quite often the very next statement that will be made by the person to whom we are speaking will be, but Jesus turned water to wine. Doesn't that then give God's approval for not only the making of it, but the drinking of it? And so I thought tonight we would turn our attention for the last part of the lesson to that very set of notes in John the second chapter and look with more intent and to look with more certainty at the wine that Jesus made. And that in fact resulted in the title to the lesson as I have used it tonight. What about the wine that Jesus made? As we revisit John the second chapter, it would seem that the wisest thing for us to do would be to read the first 11 verses of John 2, the entirety of the text, and let us then allow to rest upon our mind that which is there for our, for our learning. Beginning in verse number 1, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they fill them up to the brim, and he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, 
But the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Cana was a somewhat small village situated about eight miles from Nazareth. Nazareth, of course, was that place where Jesus grew up. As he and his family had lived there and dwelled there, perhaps that provides a bit of understanding as to the character of the Lord's presence and his mother's presence and his, and his disciples' presence at this marriage feast in Cana. As they were present on this place and on this occasion, isn't it significant that based upon the activity of Mary, it would seem that she was more than just an equal guest with some of the others. She seems to have had a role to play in perhaps ensuring that that which took place was smooth. We each know that when a party or a get-together is thrown, we, we like for it to be smooth. We certainly don't like for, for those who have made the opportunity to prepare it to run into problems. The person, and likely it's usually a lady, but she makes certain that the preparation, there's plenty of food, it's organized properly, everything is structured in a correct fashion, and it's well organized. Mary seems to have had a role to play in that here, which leads us to suspect maybe she was a close friend of either the groom or the family of the groom. But be that as it may, it's certainly fair to say that a problem arose in verse 3. Mary came to Jesus and said, They have no wine. That statement was made after the opening declaration of verse 3 when it says, And they wanted wine. The actual Greek verb means that the wine failed. They either had run out or were shortly about to completely run out, it would seem. And for the hostess and the bridegroom's family, this was a disaster. We well remember that the marriage feasts of that first century were major undertakings. Often they'd last a week as the friends of the bride and the groom had gathered to celebrate this marriage they are about to or have already run out of wine. And on that occasion, Mary, becoming aware of the problem, approaches Jesus. It would seem she was well aware that he was able to do something about it. He had the power within himself to see to that need and to rectify the situation. And so she says to him in verse number 3, They have no wine. The Lord's reply in verse 4 went like this, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. That reply may to you and me sound somewhat on the harsh side. And yet from those rather knowledgeable and skilled in the ancient language of Greek, it really was not that way at all. It was a rather direct reminder to Mary of the role that she should appreciate and the role that she should understand. Notice again the wording, What have I to do with thee? we might well notice that the Lord's principal message and the reason for His coming was to provide a means of redemption to the human family. His primary focus and control wasn't on producing wine for a marriage feast or other miracles. He performed the miracles for the purpose of gaining attention so that they would listen to His message, so that the gospel would reach a tender heart 
And that heart would openly respond in submission because of the belief engendered within it. Isn't it significant then to notice that verse 4 closes, Mine hour is not yet come. The Lord's principal revelation of Himself, as He later would perform many miracles, He seems to have reminded His mother, the opportune time for me to begin the purposeful and direct and extensive proclamation of God's gospel has not yet fully come. But the Lord did perform a miracle on this occasion, didn't He? And notice in verse number 5, Mary, it seems, was sufficiently convinced of the fact that Jesus was going to do something that she, in fact, spoke to the servants and simply said, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. That it still remains a rather powerful lesson for the human family today, doesn't it? Whatever the Lord says, it should be the first and only real consideration of you and of me to simply do it. It's not our place to ask why. It's not our place to offer our own thoughts in recognition. Those are irrelevant and they're immaterial. Whatever he says unto you, do it. And so it was in the next verse. We notice in verse number 6 the simple fact of this following statement. There were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Present on the occasion of this marriage ceremony, this feast, were six water pots these, of course, would have been handcrafted in the ancient day of pottery on a wheel. And as these water pots were present, the inspired writer informs us they were there for the purpose of the purification of the Jews. From Mark, the seventh chapter, among other places, we learn that the Jews were very serious about open purification. They often washed their hands and the cups and the platters. Remember, the Lord on many occasions made that reference to them. In fact, he even denounced on more than one occasion the fact that they made the outside of the platter clean, but inside they were full of dead men's bones. Matthew 23, verses 44 and following. Significantly here, these six water pots were present. Isn't it interesting that John even informs us somewhat about the size of these? He says as verse 6 closes that these each contained two or three firkins. I suppose it's fair to notice a firkin is not a common unit of liquid measure for you and me today. So I've taken the liberty to merely quote some things from a Bible dictionary as well as the Greek text and the meaning of the words there. As the very last statement notice, because John said that it holds two or three, that leads us to appreciate that if one firkin is somewhere on the order of nine and a half to 10.4 gallons, Two to three firkins would be somewhere between 18 and 32 gallons. And each one of these water pots held that much. Obviously, that's a rather significant amount of liquid. 18 to 32, and of course, when you multiply that by six, because there were six water pots, we clearly are now somewhere between about 100 and 180 gallons. That's how much water was now in these pots. Because notice what is said next. The very next statement that we find in verse number 7, Jesus said, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. Every one of them were absolutely to the top. 
And isn't it significant how that, that helps us see? That means that no other liquid could have been added that would have contaminated whatever it was that by miracle the Lord made. They were absolutely full. Interestingly enough, that leads us to notice the following set of ideas from verses 8, 9, and 10. We have then the observation in verse number 8. Jesus, next speaking, says, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. This governor of the feast was a very close friend of the bridegroom. He was one whose responsibility was and whose obligation was to ensure that the festivities proceeded smoothly and in, or, in, in an organized fashion and way. And so it was that this particular liquid was now drawn out as Jesus commanded and it was taken to him. It was his responsibility to ensure that whatever was served was proper, it was appropriate, it was correct, it had the taste that it was supposed to have. Here we notice that it was taken to the ruler of the feast. That's the same identification as the governor in the previous verse. And it says when he had tasted it, verse number 9, the governor immediately called the bridegroom. Whatever he had tasted so excited and was so worthy of compliment that in verse 10 he called the bridegroom and said, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This good friend of the bridegroom, this governor, this ruler of the feast, upon tasting it, he called and had the bridegroom brought. And he first made a statement that was a common one for the way that these things were held. Most of the time, what is the best or what's good is set forth first, and then when men have well drunk, then that which is somewhat of poorer quality is set forth. But he said, you have saved the best until last. If I could use a common vernacular or a common statement of today, you've saved the good wine until now. All of those ideas lead us to appreciate that one last statement in verse 11 is then made. His disciples believed on him, being aware, because they knew where the wine had come from that the bridegroom tasted, they believed on him. They came to appreciate more fully the power over nature that he had and the power over quality that was available to him. Might I submit that at least with the setting before us, the facts of the case, if you will, what can we now conclude about the nature of the wine, about the situation as it's described for us and to us? Notice at the bottom, I have simply asked that same set of questions again. What about the wine that Jesus made here when he turned the water into wine? Was it what you and I would call unfermented, basically very good grape juice? Or on the other hand, was it fermented? Was it alcoholic in content? Was it that which was intoxicating in character and in nature? As you and I notice the situation before us, we are in a position, I think, now to put together those questions with the text we've studied and see if we can't reach a conclusion and to reach an answer. First of all, let's notice six considerations that I think will lead us to one final conclusion. And let's look at them one at a time. First of all, might we recollect, at least in passing, a couple of the passages that we remember from earlier in the lesson tonight. 
taken again from Proverbs 20, verse number 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. That was a direct statement from the book of Proverbs. And of course, our Lord knew the book of Proverbs very well, just as he knew all of the Bible. We have already learned then that from that passage in Habakkuk, from that passage in Proverbs, that to partake in fermented beverages, alcoholic beverages, and to encourage such in the lives of others is an activity that does not meet God's approval. It's a sinful thing. But we're told in Hebrews 4.15 that we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. The Lord never sinned, not even once. And hence, if to partake of these matters was a sinful thing, and we've already established that it was, then it stands as an impossibility that the Lord turned this water into alcoholic wine, into inebriating wine, into fermented beverages. But notice, that's only one consideration. Might we look at another one? Second on that list, we are told rather directly and with no ambiguity in Hebrews 7.26 that Jesus was absolutely guileless and pure. For there, as his high priesthood is described, we have not one who, again, is of a formalism of being of guile, but rather he is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Notice again, the Lord thus in every aspect of his life lived a life of purity. That includes what he ate, what he drank, how he interacted with others, the way in which he conducted himself on all occasions. If the Lord's purity is therein described, what might we now say about this? We've already learned that there was in excess of a hundred gallons of wine produced on this occasion. Could it possibly be argued that Jesus acted purely if he turned a hundred gallons of water into alcoholic beverages so that these individuals there who had already drunk freely, John 2 verse 10, could only become more sloshed in the hours that followed by their partaking, a hundred gallons more of this alcoholic beverage, if that's what he made. That conclusion makes no sense. Notice again, the Lord's purity would not allow him to produce something like in excess of a hundred gallons of this, which would lead to behavior on the part of those present that would have been exceedingly vile, lewd, unacceptable, and full of iniquity. In fact, didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me, even as I also am of Christ. Can any of us honestly imagine the Lord producing in excess of a hundred gallons of this, which upon consumed by those present would have led to their great inebriation? Now notice, that's irrelevant as to whether or not Jesus partook of it or not. For if he made it available to others, he was as guilty as they were. Romans 1 verse 32 reminds us of that fact. If we encourage others to sin, we are as guilty as they are. Thus, that's two arguments that seem very strong as it leads us to see that it would certainly appear this was not inebriating beverages. But might we move on to number three? These individuals present already, of course, had drunk freely. Again, John 2 verse 10 tells us that. So if they had already drunk freely, 
with the Lord now providing over a hundred gallons more, certainly some of them would now have been completely and totally drunken in the sense of being absolutely wasted. You and I know that drunkenness is a sin. It's listed that way on many occasions in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 is one verse we've looked at earlier. But notice in Galatians 5 verses 19 and 20, there among those that will not enter heaven, a drunkard is right in the list. And in Revelation 22, one more time, a drunkard is listed as those not pleasing to God and those that will not be acceptable to him as recipients of the great home in heaven. Thus, with that line of consideration, might we notice that again it would have to be the case that this was non-alcoholic in its character in the form and in the nature of this wine that the Lord made. In the fourth place, might I ask us to look at the ruler himself and the remark that he made in verses 9 and 10. Isn't it interesting in verse number, in those two verses, the ruler made this comment. Every man first sets forth that which is the best or that which is good, and only later is that of poorer quality brought forth. But you have saved the good wine until now. It's clear that this ruler, no matter how much prior he had drunken, he was still at his full capability of judgment, his full capability of appreciating the nature of the quality of this wine that the Lord had now made. I would submit if he was already inebriated and intoxicated and lacking in judgment, he wouldn't have been able to tell that this latter wine the Lord made was of the highest quality. Even his comment seems to resoundingly suggest this wine that had already been drunken was not intoxicating. And it was not that which would lead one to dull and dulling of the senses. That kind of statement perhaps no notices for us. Yet a fifth argument. Another one that we can also consider in this line of thinking. In the fifth place, let us turn back and ask about the word that is actually appearing in the Greek text. It appears again in verse number 10. When men have well drunk, by far the most common temptation is for us to read into that word that which it seems to mean in language today. When you and I refer to a man or to a person and say he or she is drunk, by that, that word has come to mean that person is completely inebriated, intoxicated, senses have been dulled, no longer is that person able to act in ways of sound judgment and of sound mind any longer. I suppose we might ask, does that word in this text mean that? Does the original Greek word mean that? I've listed for you that the word that appears in this place means to drink freely, and that's the way the American Standard renders it. But isn't it interesting to look at some of the other ways in the New Testament that that same word is used? I find that extremely interesting. I have chosen to list one of them for your thinking, and it's in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 21. As the same Greek word is used there, might we ask what it means? In that case... Paul was discussing with the Corinthian brethren an abuse of the Lord's Supper. As we noted in our Wednesday night study several months ago, on that occasion the church in Corinth had come to bring their own common meal and partake of it along with or beside of the actual consumption of the Lord's Supper. 
In that case, Paul said, have you not houses to eat and to drink in? And at the close of that verse, he notes, one has brought his own supper, one is hungry, and another is methusko. Notice that methusko there simply means to be satisfied, to be full in essence, to be satiated. Perhaps we might note then that that word in the original language doesn't mean anything close to what we often say it means today. Thus, this ruler of the feast in John 2 verse 10 could well have been saying in that given verse, when men are satisfied, when they have drunk plenty, having nothing whatsoever to refer to the actual character of the wine as being intoxicating or not. It's just the fact they've drunk a bunch. They have drunk a lot. That could well be what this gentleman was saying. I would submit thus that even the nature of the language itself doesn't demand that this having been a type of beverage that was alcoholic in content. Might we close by noting one more interesting feature. The best wine, as it's described in the Bible, seems to have clearly been non-intoxicating. And I've listed several verses for you to consider with me. As prophets such as Joel and Isaiah made reference to the wine provided by God, and the wine that is the greatest of blessing and benefit to the human family, the way in which that wine is described without any doubt whatsoever had to have been unintoxicating. How do we know that? Well, note the way the wine's described. He says it is squeezed from the grape. Freshly squeezed, I might add. That's directly coming out of the vineyard. There has been no opportunity for fermentation. It is directly what is immediately present upon the activity of producing it. In Joel's case, Joel 2.24, the reference on that occasion again clearly refers to what could not possibly have been intoxicating. And as the word wine is employed, it's strongly stated to be again a blessing from God and that which one should appreciate to be a finer quality and that which is a finer characteristic. In light of these six points of view, these considerations from both Old and New Testament alike, the wine that the Lord made in the second chapter of John was not intoxicating. It was a wine that in fact could lead to the highest of appreciation of that which the Lord made as it had been in relation to the other that had been consumed previously in that marriage feast. It was not intoxicating, despite what some might wish it to have been, since they think that would justify their consumption of it today. It was not so. And thus, in summary to our lesson tonight, this was the first miracle that our Lord performed, the turning of water to wine at this marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. And as we have turned our attention to studying it this evening, we've been reminded that upon closer inspection, and closer consideration, this was not an intoxicating variety of wine. It thus had all the blessing of not only the Savior, but of God, of the apostles, and of others as they wrote in the New Testament. Perhaps as we close this evening, as we perhaps have opportunity to study this same topic throughout the days of this week, in 1 Peter 4, verse number 3, there's one last condemnation of the consumption of alcoholic beverages. As we read on that occasion of the Lord's denunciation of it in the words of the Apostle Peter, he described an ascendancy in regard to its consumption. 
There were those that were completely drunken. In a sense, they were fully inebriated. The word he uses is excess of wine. But then he describes banquetings and revelings. Those latter two refer in one way or another to a drinking or a drinking party. And notice there the discussion hasn't to do with the fullness of excess of wine. It's a lesser degree in terms of consumption. Same thing is still condemned. We are thus aware that in any of those instances, Old or New Testament alike, God's Word has led us to appreciate His will concerning these matters. And so tonight, when our lesson is now coming to its conclusion, might we notice again how that God's Word is so different from what the world might wish and what the world might prefer. Are you a Christian this evening? Have you had your sins washed away by the blood of the Lamb? We read in Revelation 7:14 that it is those whose sins have been washed by, by the blood of the Lamb. Those who wear those garments of white, they are the ones that will circle the throne of God in heaven forevermore. So what about you tonight? Are you prepared to don those robes?